We have been studying Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus for some time now, and today we're turning to the second half of that letter, starting chapter 4. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 6, and that's what we'll be discussing today. So Paul's letter to Ephesus, uh, verses 1 through 4 from chapter 4. Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So every preacher and public speaker knows that when you begin your talk, you have to grab your audience's attention right away with a catchy story or a big idea. And so today, uh, we are going to talk about the moods of verb tenses in the Greek language. Yes! Are you ready? All right, I knew you would love that. So... You guys are fired up this morning. I like it. I like it. (laughs) If you've studied Latin or Greek, you know uh, that those languages use three moods uh, changing the form of the indicative, or of the infinitive. So there's the indicative mood. This actually is really important. The indicative mood uh, indicates or tells uh, what is stating a fact, as in, he is running. That's just a fact, right? This is what is true of whoever's running. (laughs) Then there's the imperative, and that's a commandment. That is uh, for issuing commands, as in go run. Indicative, he is running. Uh, Commandment, go run. And then there's the subjunctive mood, which we're really not going to get into that much today, but that often expresses a wish, like I wish I could run. So, in chapter 4, Paul begins to share imperatives with us. He's begin, begin, uh, begin to start telling us what we should do and what we should not do, what our life should be about and the things that we're called to do, but he's only doing so after having established indicative after indicative after indicative in chapters 1 through 3. So, an indicative is what is true of you. It's not what you do, it's who you are. And he has gone over some amazing indicatives. This is what is true before he goes on to tell us, now do this and don't do that. So here he says, just a few of the indicative statements that Paul has already told us, I want to summarize in chapters one through three. We are chosen, predestined, adopted, blessed, and we are the beloved of God. That's just one. You guys are fired up. You ready for more? If you can get excited about Greek tenses, then I know you're ready for what's next. We have redemption, forgiveness, and the lavish love of a father. We have an inheritance and are sealed by the Holy Spirit himself. And although we were once dead in sin, we are now alive, loved, and we're saved. We are raised, seated, in the recipients of immeasurable riches of grace. We are God's workmanship, created for good works. We are brought near by the blood of Christ. 
We are fellow citizens, saints, and members of the household of God. And I skipped over some stuff. That's just what Paul has said in chapter 3. So, friends, this is true always. Read your Bible. Gospel-centered preaching flows just like. It tells people who they are before it tells them what to do. It tells them who they are before it tells them what to do. One author put it this way. Gospel obligation flows out of gospel proclamation. And so let's receive these commands that we're about to get into in chapters four through six and live them out, walk in them, as Paul is calling us and urging us to do, but not in order to earn our salvation, but because it's already been victoriously won by one who lived and died and rose from the dead. Amen? So he's, he's about to to bring some challenge, which is good. We need it. He once again refers to himself as a prisoner for the Lord. And now he says, again, and this is the second time he's told us that, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says, I I urge you. And that Greek word means to call you to do something, but it's alongside of you. The word is parakaleo, which means to call out, literally. like to, But it's para, it's with, right? So I'm with you, and as I'm walking with you, I'm, I'm calling you, but I'm with you. It's like the word par- paraclete for the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John, where it says the one who uh, comes alongside. And so this is parakaleo. I'm calling you to do something, but I'm not calling you to do something that I'm not also doing, and I'm with you as I'm calling you to do it. I urge you. He's calling us as he's walking the walk, talking the talk. There's no hypocrisy in Paul. Paul often uses this word walk as a meaning of of the way that we live our life, right? As As an analogy. Envisioning a journey where every step in your life should be moving you to the type of faith that's integrated with your real life. That it's not just a faith for Sunday morning. It's not just a faith when you're at a student ministry. It's not just a faith because you're at a gospel community. It's a, it's a faith that daily is becoming more and more integrated into your actual life, in your actual loves, in your motives, your desires. This calling, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He's not talking about our, our vocation. He's talking about the calling that we have in light of the gospel. And so whether you're a baker back in this context or a farmer or a carpenter, your ultimate calling, he's saying, is to be one who's walking in a worthy manner. He then describes exactly what he means by that. He doesn't leave it to question, what do you mean, Paul, by walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received? And the first way he describes it is this, in all humility and gentleness. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called, in all humility, all humility and gentleness. The word humility literally means lowliness. And I have a good friend named Josh Rotano who wrote a book with another good friend of mine named Ray Kanata. They're both pastors in our denomination and it's called Rooted. It's a great book. And it's a book about the Apostles' Creed. And in that book, Josh and Ray say this about humility. Humility was not considered a virtue until after Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, In the Greek culture, for example, humility was a shameful thing. No one wanted humility. They wanted what? Do you know? Glory. 
fame. It had been viewed as weakness, but the gospel, they write, scandalized the pagan world when it, came, uh, when it claimed that the God of the universe came down from heaven and humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. The overarching theme that Paul is picking up from chapter two, we've already talked about, is unity in the body of Christ. Unity. The church is one. That even Jews and Gentiles, we, we learn from chapter two, that could not have less in common are now counted as one new family because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the sending of the Spirit. C.S. Lewis famously called pride the great sin. It's the greatest of sins, he says, and he says that love is the greatest of virtues. And and he says it's the greatest sin because pride causes you uh, to be defensive. It makes you bitter. Uh, Rotano and Kanata write this, we become competitive, overly concerned with being noticed. We feel so slighted by those around us that we become unable to forgive. Pride encourages you to feel better about tearing somebody else down. But when we're humble, we no longer need to pursue a name for ourselves. Uh, we, uh, we are free. We don't have to win in disagreements. Uh, we don't have to get fame. We can listen. We can encourage. We don't need to boast or win. Gentleness. In all humility and then in gentleness. And gentleness, according to Lynn Kohick, uh, who's a theologian, and she wrote a great commentary on the book of Ephesians. And she says, it carries the sense of self-control and kindness. In fact, whenever you describe somebody who's gentle, I don't usually ever use that word for somebody who's slight of stature. Like, oh, that 5'4 guy, (laughs) he's really gentle. And people are like, yeah, for good reason. Instead, you'll say it like about Chris Heald, like Chris Heald, who looks like he could rip your head off because he's 6'8 and does, you know, Taekwondo, uh, he is actually very gentle. You say that about the powerful person, right? And so she says that gentleness suggests a person with self-control and wisdom to discern justice and then to act to rectify uh, and to work on behalf of justice. It is resisting anger because such outbursts do not lead to righteousness, Gentleness, then, is somebody who has resources, somebody who has power, perhaps, and in strength, but is choosing to limit that strength in order to be gentle. The next phrase that Paul uses is with patience and bearing with one another in love. The word patience in this passage literally means long-suffering. Mm. I like short suffering. <laughs> How about you guys? I get sick. I want to be over it uh, today. Uh, I, I want to be done. I don't want to suffer long. If somebody bothers me, I want them away from me. I don't want to suffer long with somebody that's annoying to me. Do you? <laughs> no, you don't. But in the church, the problem is you're one. And we're to be unified and, and one of the great things about being a pastor and a difficult things is you are constantly having to deal with lots of people that are different than you. And Paul says the way to be the church in a healthy way is you have to suffer long with others just as God is one who's long-suffering, right? Who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is the repeated phrase throughout the entire Old Testament. Abounding 
in covenantal steadfast love, has said, and his faithfulness is to all generations. With patience. Once again, my friend Josh and Ray say, the best way to wreck a church is to go in with the expectation that everyone will do everything right. No one will hurt you. No one will step on your toes. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I tell people all the time, uh, some people come into this church and are super excited. They found a church home. They want to be a part of it. And they're like, I found the best church ever. I'm so glad. And I'm not trying to, I know. And, And other people are like, you're so lame. I'm never coming back. So it's like, okay. But the people who stay are often excited. And I'll warn them like, but this is, this is a real place with real people and we let each other down and, and the reality is we have to suffer long with one another if we're gonna be the church, right? If you're actually gonna be life on life, living in real life, real friendship and not just be uh, come to a service where there's a guy on a stage and, but to be the church requires long suffering. Everyone in every single church is a sinner. Did you know that? <laughs> Being sanctified by the Spirit should be coming more and more like Jesus, but I don't know if you've also noticed, that's a slow process. So every single church is a sinner, is filled with sinners, so we need to be like God, our Father, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The next phrase that Paul gives us uh, to describe what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the, the call that we have is be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is Paul's big theme. Be eager to be unified. Um, Because it's unthinkable for him, Paul, that people like us who have union with Jesus because of his life, death, and his resurrection, and he goes to the extent to say, here's also what's true of you. You have been crucified. He says that about you in other places. You've already been crucified. You're like, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. Doesn't matter. Why? Because you have union with Jesus. And when he died his death, you were connected to that. And when he rose again from the dead, Paul even says in the indicative mood of believers that you're raised in Christ and seated in the heavenly places. You're like, no, I'm sitting here in Chandler, Arizona right now. But he's saying it's as good as true right now. So again, here's, here's the deal. He's saying... Paul is saying, I can't fathom that people who have union with Jesus would not also have union with one another. How can you have union with Jesus Christ and not have union uh, with one another? Christian unity is found in Christ. It's not found in being just like one another. Uh, The Jews that were coming to faith in Jesus and the Gentiles that were coming to faith in Jesus could not have been more different. They didn't share the same uh, uh, languages, uh, dress. They're eating, eating, you know, over here they're eating pork. They're having ham. (laughs) Over here they are not, no shrimp, no, you know, it's different. And they don't trust each other. They've hated each other previously. And Paul says, but you're now members of one family. The comedian uh, Emo Phillips has a well-known bit about the way Christians treat each other. He says, I once saw a guy on a bridge about to jump off and I ran to him and I said, don't do it. And he said, nobody loves me. And I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He goes, I do believe in God. He said, are you a Christian? He said, I am a Christian. I said, me too. I said, are you Catholic or are you Protestant? And he said, I'm Protestant. And I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. I'm a Baptist. Wait, 
are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. And he said, Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist. And he said, Northern Conservative. And I said, me too. And Northern, Con- and then Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern. He said, Great Lakes. Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or 1912? And he said, 1912. And I said, die, ter- heretic. And I pushed him in. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? We have so much in common, and yet we divide over non-essentials so often. Our unity is based on Christ. And Jesus is calling us, maintain that unity. Then, in verses four through six, he goes on. And this is so beautiful. He says, listen to how many times he says the word one. There is one body. That's the church. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. Uh, Just last week, I was hanging out with a a new friend of mine that is uh, getting connected at New Valley. And he said, you know, I did not grow up in a tradition that's ever recited the Apostles' Creed. And I got got a couple questions. I'm like, great. And he said, why on earth do we say, uh, I believe in one holy Catholic church. I've just been wondering, are, are we secretly like Roman Catholic? And I'm like, no, 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 let me explain. And I explained to him, and we're gonna get into that right now. So this phrase is, I believe in the holy Catholic church. And that, that causes a lot of confusion for a lot of people. So much so you might wonder, why do we keep saying it? And so I wanna take some time to expound this morning why I fight for still saying Holy Catholic Church rather than some other word. So first, what is the Apostles' Creed? And we're gonna, we're gonna recite it today. Why on earth do we do this? The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creeds were documents that were forged in just the first few hundred uh, years of the early church. Uh, they took place at councils where representatives from around the world, uh, from the church worldwide, gathered to sort things out. So the Nicene Creed was sorting out the Trinity. Uh, You know, are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all truly one God? And they worked that out so that the reason that we're Trinitarian today is because of what they did in the Nicene Creed and saying, this is Christianity, and anyone who denies that Jesus has eternally been God and that the Holy Spirit has always and eternally been God, and that God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is outside of the Christian faith. So they did that. Also, uh, this Apostles' Creed was formed not to supersede the Bible, neither, none of the creeds are, but to summarize what are the essentials, because the Bible's a big book in in the New Testament. What are the essentials of our faith that says, this is what Orthodox is? So, the, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, I just discovered this year a new book that it's new to me. It's by a professor from Calvin Seminary, and it's a funny title, but it's called Letter to a Young Calvinist. It's by James K.A. Smith. I, if you're into theology at all, I can't recommend it more. It's, it's wonderful. He writes this, The earliest creeds are affirmed by all Christians because they are the oldest memory of the church. 
The Apostles' Creed was a succinct summary of the faith, which arose as a statement uh, for confessing faith upon baptism. Now, when we say the Apostles' Creed, uh, do you ever notice that the word Catholic is lowercase? So it's, it's referring to the word Catholic, not the denomination Roman Catholic. So we're not saying we believe in one Roman Catholic church. Instead, we're saying we believe in one Catholic church. Well, what does that mean? Um, the word Catholic in Greek means throughout the whole. Some people say it means uh, universal also. That's another way to, to, to say it, but through, literally throughout the whole. So this word Catholic means throughout all time and all places and points to the unity and the wholeness of the church that is rooted and established in Christ. And if there was an English word that did a better job or a clearer way of explaining that, we'd use it so it would be less confusing, but there just isn't a word that captures it throughout the whole. It means like when we say, by faith, Abraham, and by faith, Moses, and by faith, and there we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And, and the, the author of Hebrews pictures this cloud of people. We're running a race, and there's these people on the sidelines that are going, keep running. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. When we say the Apostles' Creed, friends, we're joining in to a rootedness and a faith that didn't just begin 15 minutes ago. We have a 2,000-year-old faith, faith that is connected to a much more ancient faith in the, in, in the Jewish faith. Our faith is not new. It's rooted. But so much of modern Christianity has left behind everything that's historical, and all we want to hear is what is the latest and the greatest thing from our latest celebrity pastor or author. We need to be rooted. Paul says that in Christ, there's one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. And the call of Catholicity is the call to oneness. That's why we say it. We are one. We have the same hope. These, these brothers and sisters in Japan that are coming to faith in Jesus, they have the same Lord that we have. One hope, one faith, one baptism. The same faith in the essentials, and we can agree to disagree on the non-essentials, or, or, or we should. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. Be careful, friends, of pastors, teachers, authors, discernment bloggers, whose list of essentials is longer than the apostles themselves. Have you noticed how some Christians, uh, in some corners of, of the Christian faith, everything's essential. When in reality, uh, <laughs> your, your list of essentials, I have found, the longer I've lived, the longer I've walked with Jesus, my essentials are getting smaller, actually, not, not bigger. Christians, we look to Scripture as our final authority, but we have to interpret Scripture, uh, and not everyone is going to arrive at the same interpretation about some things, but the essentials are pretty clear. Things like the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, the scriptures, authority, the gospel of grace through faith alone. I, I heard one really well-known pastor say when somebody asked him, why would someone choose to baptize in a different mode than the way, we the way that we practice it at our church? And his answer was, there's only two reasons, one, ignorance, and two, disobedience. 
<laughs> and this same pastor, uh, very well-known author and pastor, he kind of rolls like that with all, every, all of his interpretations. End times view, I think he'd say the same thing. It's just, at the end of the day, your list of essentials should be far shorter than your list of non-essentials. If the only true Christians are those in your denomination, if the only true Christians are, are the only people that are at your church, then you have a really, really small view of the church. And you're gonna be really surprised when you get to heaven and you're gonna be surrounded by all these people that you wouldn't fellowship with in this life because they have the same Lord, the same faith, the same hope, amen? Or even scarier, you may not see them in heaven because when you come face to face with Jesus, he might say, depart from me, I never knew you because you're a Pharisee. Ouch, that has to be said. R.C. Sproul says this, the union of believers is grounded in the mystical union of Christ and his church. And every converted person becomes in Christ at the same time Christ enters into the heart of a believer. If I am in Christ and you are in Christ and if he is in us, then we have a profound unity in Christ. John 17, the glory, this is what Jesus prayed. It's called the high priestly prayer right before he goes to the cross. This is what right before he went to the cross to save us from our sins. This is what Jesus prayed for the church. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as you and I are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as I have loved you. I tell people all the time, New Valley is a part of the church in Phoenix. It is not the church in Phoenix. We are just one small congregation in what God is doing in this great city. But what a, what a joy that is to be a part of what God is doing in a city. We love other churches. We root for them. We cheer them on. We shouldn't gossip, tear down, or look for ways to fight. We're one. We're one in Christ. The divisions that are happening more and more, interesting, are not over theological reasons, but they're over cultural and political issues. But we need to remember we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're members of one body. We share one inheritance, one future, and we will be one family forever from every tribe, tongue, nation, and ethnicity. We will be one family for all of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we are one, but we are not the same. But because of you, O oh Lord, and your gospel, we, we can love one another, prefer one another, be united to one another, even though in spite of our differences. So Lord Jesus, as we come uh, right now to share in this meal of great unity, uh, literally communion, that we would commune as a body, hopeful for the church in Chandler and Gilbert and Tempe and Phoenix and Arizona and around the whole world, Lord, that, that we get to demonstrate oneness, that we get to pray for that and work towards it and, and be a part of the solution. Help us to be able to do that in Jesus' good name. Amen.